Hello out there! I'm Will. And I'm Whitney. And you're listening to Yelling About Superheroes. This is episode two, Heroes in the Headlines. Today we'll be talking about the role that media outlets have played in superhero stories, from the journalistic adventures of Lois Lane to Iron Man's press conference reveal in the MCU and so much more besides. So today, like in our last episode, we mainly stuck to one character, um, Captain America. But this time we mentioned we were going to do this a little bit in the beginning of the previous episode. But this time we're going to actually branch out and talk about a larger sort of thematic motif sort of thing in superhero narratives in general. And that is in-world media outlets. Basically, we're going to talk about um, how in-universe media outlets shape in-world perceptions of superheroes and how those work on a, I guess, a rhetorical level and yep. stuff like that. So yeah, it's a stuff lot more like... like the Daily yeah. Bugle, Daily Planet, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. <laughs> Jon Stewart, so. also the name of a Green Lantern. So, you know. I Please tell me that has popped up as a joke in at least one Green Lantern comic featuring Jon I mean, Stewart. probably. So... But yeah, anyway, we're getting a little off track. So I'm going to do a little brief like academic theory primer because I've thought about this way too much. Here it comes. Um, and I, I promise I will make this brief. Um, so basically like the reason we're even like wondering about this in the first place and the reason why, like I personally, and I'm sure you'd agree, think it's extremely important is that, um, well, there are a couple like communications and cultural studies sort of theories at play here. Um, these guys called McCombs and Shaw, and for the life of me, I do not remember their uh, first names. I don't care either. They, in about the 1970s or so, they put forth the um, agenda-setting theory of mass media, and it's basically what it sounds like. The mass media, as we know it, like newspapers and stuff like that, and this is pre-internet, but like the internet as well, now that that exists, that has the power to shape cultural discourse like tell people what they should be thinking about and talking about and stuff like that and it may sound like stating the obvious but it's an important like foundation to a lot of communication studies um and then as well this french guy whose name i'm going to absolutely butcher louis althusser um something like that it was probably terrible he has this whole idea of how various state entities work he has um he's divided them into repressive state apparatuses which are more like direct forces like governments, the military, and things like that, versus ideological state apparatuses, which like also kind of work to corral people's behavior, but on a subtler level. Um, and the examples he talks about of um, ideological state apparatuses are things like the church, the family, the school, and also the media. It can serve to put forth whatever like ideologies and doctrines the you know state in question prefers and wants to instill in its subjects. So for that reason, it's like ISAs, which I, that's let's just say that from now on. They're immensely powerful. So I think it's incredibly like worth examining how that functions in superhero stories in particular, because I feel like more often than not, superhero stories are, they take place in worlds that are so very, mm -hmm. very, very much like our own. So I don't know. It's just, I think it's gonna be really interesting to like talk about how these things play out in superhero stories and yeah maybe because that, yeah. yeah because like superheroes are the vast majority of them like pretty public figures even with their secret identities and all of them are being going to be like covered in the media in like the settings that they exist in but are also in 
a few cases, uh, interestingly enough, also helping to create that media. Just yeah, in... doesn't Clark Kent write a lot? It, 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 <clears throat> didn't he, like, write some of his own stories in the sense that, like, he was writing about Superman's exploits? I feel like I read about that in that Lois Lane biography. Has he, has he done that? I feel like he's done that. I'm sure it's happened. I don't think it's like, because Peter Parker has a very long, like, running history of taking pictures of Spider Man and selling them to the Daily Bugle and stuff. Right. I don't yeah, think, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's necessarily as much of a thing with Superman, but that's definitely happened before. Yeah. Yeah. I just remember reading in particular that, like, for a while before Lois technically found out that Clark was Superman, she, like, was in love with Superman, but hated Clark Kent because Clark kept getting all like the good scoops at uh, Daily Planet <laughs> and stuff like that. So yeah, and like I didn't have time to read much as much of this book as I would have wanted. Um, it's investigating Lois Lane is the name of the book. It's by I think it's by Tim Hanley. Um, but that I don't so I don't remember if he mentioned at all whether like Clark was in charge of writing about Superman and got I guess got to shape Superman's media image through that, but. That was, I think that was kind of implied to be the case. I, I don't know. I don't know nearly enough about Superman to like, sort of speak to that much more, but I'd love to like just examine that further alone. That'd yeah. be a really interesting project. And I think there's also something interesting that I'm thinking of with kind of a comparing between like Superman and his role as a reporter and what the Daily Planet is versus Peter Parker and his role as a photographer at the Daily Bugle. In, in um, what sense? Could you elaborate it, on that? Okay, so it comes down to like... I don't actually know whether the parallel between him and Superman is deliberate or not, but I feel like it wouldn't surprise me to learn that like Peter's job as a photographer was based in some respect as sort of a parallel to Superman being a reporter. Hmm. Yeah, that's because, interesting. Because like, Superman definitely predates Superman oh, by a fair bit. Yeah, but, like at least 30 years, I think. I'm not too good on like dates and stuff. Yeah, but... So it's like Superman is a reporter at the Daily Planet in Metropolis. And uh, like, you know, Superman is, everyone likes Superman. He's got, in most stories at least, a very positive like public image. And like the stories that are being written about him at the Daily Planet, even if Clark's not writing them himself, are still in a lot of cases going to be pretty positive, I think, and usually paint Superman in a positive light. And in turn, the city sees him in a positive light for a lot of reasons. And things just generally go well on in that particular respect. But meanwhile, like, Peter Parker is working for the Daily Bugle, taking pictures of Spider-Man, and J. Jonah Jameson is using those pictures in articles to make Spider-Man look bad. And it's like, at the same time, like, Spider-Man himself does not generally have a super awesome public image. People, at least in New York, don't tend to trust him, in large part because of the Daily Bugle, like, telling... Yeah, which again is why this is such often, an important thing to be discussing. Yeah. and this does happen. Yeah, and it's often like the Daily Bugle is telling pretty deliberate, like, well, not deliberate necessarily, but just actual lies about him. At the very least, like, Jameson is... A bit of yellow like, journalism going on there. Yeah. I feel like Jameson, like, at least isn't trying, isn't deceiving people for the sake of deceiving people. He legitimately doesn't like Spider-Man and, and believes why, why he's a menace he? to the city. Oh, okay. Well, I it's, mean, if he genuinely believes that, that's one thing, but... I don't know. Like, there's a few things, interesting things going on with Jameson, but 
Yeah, let's talk I don't about think that. there's like, ever what, been a girl What consistent. interesting things, like, specifically. I'm not nearly as familiar with this character as you seem to be, so... Yeah, I mean, there's a... F- He's talked about why he hates Spider-Man a few times. Like, some of it's, like... He doesn't like the fact that Spider-Man has a secret identity. And in those cases, it kind of compares him unfavorably to, like... You know, normal law enforcement who just do it as citizens as their jobs. Or, like, even people like the Avengers who, at least in later stories, have open and public identities and all that. And then there's also, like, some situations where there's been, like, situations where Jameson had to deal with Spider-Man and just some, you know, superhero crap happened one way or another and they ended up, like, Spider-Man ended up having to do something or being framed for something that, and Jameson ended up taking it personally or something like that. Huh, that's interesting. And then actually, you're kind of touching on a point I have been thinking about a lot lately and I was purposely like waiting to bring it up until we were recording this episode. And that's the fact that, and this this to me seems to be almost like a Marvel versus DC divide in that like not only is the Daily Planet like I, as far as we know, like largely positive towards Clark Kent, but in, you know, the CW version of the Supergirl, like the Catco magazine sort of like brands Supergirl and I think is just... <laughs> Portraying her, yeah, no, it's, really? it's an interesting scene, and I I haven't watched much of Supergirl at all, um, and for various reasons, I don't think I will be. Like they're very purpose, they they very purposely like sort of claim her and brand her, and um, Cat Grant, the like CEO, is like the one to give her the Supergirl moniker. So that's like DC's business, but like in Marvel, um, this isn't always true in Marvel media properties, but Marvel seems to be the one like exploring this more detail. Like media outlets so often take an adversarial position towards superheroes. I was like haunted by that the other day. I was like, why do all these media outlets seem to hate superheroes when our world, the world we're living that is so similar, kisses superhero ass all the time. Let's be real. Like there's this, my God, I used this turn of phrase so much when I was at this conference over the weekend. The uh, superhero industrial complex is what I like to call it. Yeah, I'm, I may have to use that in my hypothetical dissertation title. It's just, I, I like it a lot. But yeah, yeah, no, like we live in a culture that like worships at their friggin' feet. Like you can buy t-shirts with even like minor superheroes on them, I feel like, because you know, somebody's going to be selling like Redbubble merch of it or whatever. We're so saturated with superhero content now. Yeah, but... What- our media landscape is not like that at all. So why are in-world media outlets so often antagonistic to superheroes? What sort of larger in-world well, rhetorical purpose, in-text rhetorical purpose, does that serve? Why are people doing using this as a plot device in this particular way? Well, I mean, part of it's obviously because, like, in these settings, like, when there are superheroes around, something is probably going terribly wrong, and aliens are invading, or some supervillain is robbing a bank or something. Yeah, and so, yeah, like, yeah. there's certainly going to be a visceral reaction of, like, when superheroes are in the news, it's probably at least partly bad news. That's a good point. That's a really um, good That's something I hadn't thought about before. Yeah, I think it's partly that, and partly just because, like, I don't think there's as much interesting story to tell of like putting up positive stories about spider-man or something yeah 
Like, although, okay, there is one exception to this, and this isn't a Marvel exception. I just this just occurred to me. You remember um, Bob Parr's study in The Incredibles? It is like plastered with newspaper clippings and like magazine covers of him being all like heroic and stuff. That is, yeah, though that is the other major exception I can think of. To and that's because media that, outlets like, yeah. but then the media also turned against him in The Incredibles. Yeah, and, and that's kind of like. Because, like, in the story, that's showing the good old days or whatever yeah, that I mean, he had when, you know, people looked up to him and loved him and he had, like, a big public personality and stuff. Yeah. Oh. And whereas, I don't know, I think Marvel's just more prone to using media stuff in general. But, so it's like, there are times where there are reporters or media outlets that are sympathetic to superheroes and putting them in a more positive light. But... Like, like, the what thing can you is, because I was only able to yeah. think of actually, like, well, okay, I'm Trish thinking, Talk and Luke Cage, okay. less so, but the ones I'm thinking of are ones that are where the story itself is not about the superhero, but about the media outlet or the reporter character or whatever. Like, there's several like frontline branded comics that are right. You were telling me about those. Yeah, I've talked about these. They're kind of parallel to the uh, Marvel comics crossover events from mm -hmm. like the 2000s through 2010s right, yeah, range yeah and i still need to read them they sound really interesting honestly they're i didn't find them super interesting but <laughs> they do all have like ben urich is one of the main characters and i think betty brandt is in several of them and they're like you know generally favorable towards superheroes and they're putting in like usually positive stories as far as the superheroes go although they're also covering like terrible things happening so that's another matter but yeah. those stories aren't about like oh this uh thing is just being on the news at the time while spider-man's going and doing this thing they're about the character is getting these stories and surviving in these like ridiculous crossover event crap going on <laughs> yeah because i imagine there'd be a lot of like debris in these sorts of yeah. events. Most um, of the frontline comics end up being a little bit less about the reporting and a little bit more about, like, um, these civilian people stepping up in some small way to, like, save people's lives that are in danger because of event-related stuff. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then just whereas if Spider-Man or Iron Man or whoever has a reason to care about the Daily Bugle or the Evening News or something, either like they're something, at least in Peter's case, something is doing work-related, or it's something that's bad news because if it was good news, why is it coming up in the story anyway? Yeah. I just keep thinking about how um, TV news in particular is almost kind of like a, a Greek chorus of sorts. And I was thinking of like Iron Man and Civil War in particular. And you just rewatched Civil War last night, right? So I was thinking about the um, yeah. bit I, where the anchor is like, what authority does an enhanced individual like Wanda Maximoff have to operate in Lagos or wherever they were? Um, or no, yeah, they weren't. It was, where, no, wherever it was they were. Lagos, Nigeria. Right. Marvel movies in particular, I think, use the press at very particular junctures plot-wise. Okay. I think that my favorite bit of that is how, like, I think it's especially prominent in the Iron Man movies. Where yeah, I would they agree. show where they're having, like, actual newscasters from the real world, like Bill O'Reilly or... Oh my god, yeah. In Iron, the first Kramer Iron guy. Man especially, yeah. Um, um, and yeah, I think, like, one, back like, then, they were trying to very firmly, like, ground things in the real world. Yeah. And that yeah. was a way that they did that. Yeah, I, and, I can agree with that. I can see that. Yeah, for and sure. I think they've moved away from that a fair bit. Like, yeah, I mean, they're using now, fictional news anchors nowadays. 
Yeah, um, and like now there have Tony like, is really the only Avenger who really has any sort of like ongoing relationship with the press because like even in, is it Iron Man three in which he directly tells you know the news cameras whatever oh hey person who's been threatening me literally come to my house and we'll duke it out yeah whatever. like the fir- Iron so Man just one pop up then again yeah like Iron Man one includes like multiple press conferences yeah and yeah. like the. Yeah, because there's, like, it opens with coverage of... It's actually, like, a convenient way to provide exposition. Like, the first Iron Man movie opens with, like, a montage of... That's right. ...magazine covers. There's some... It's some, like, documentary or something about, like... Yeah, oh my god, it's been so Howard long since Howard Stark I, yeah, and then Obadiah Stane that. taking over the company right. and all that. Right, yeah, and then Tony rising to head the company at, like, age freaking, like, 21 or whatever. Yeah, um, so it's, like, a fun... It's a, fun interesting way of providing a bunch of uh context and background information they even do almost the same thing in black panther at the very beginning just recapping yeah. the events relevant that yeah. happened in civil war yeah and it's an interesting contrast in black panther between other people reporting on wakanda at the very beginning versus t'challa very much sort of like taking the reins of wakanda's international image um because <laughs> you know the deception is still in place in the being they still think wakanda is this like third world country i knew we talked whatever. about black panther at some point in this yeah episode. we yeah we're recording this on february 18 we literally just saw black panther so that's basically like how the press plays into things in that movie like that's pretty much the extent of it i think yeah okay so again this question of like why media outlets tend to be adversarial to superheroes like i'll tell you what i've been thinking about that i the okay these like two different like thoughts i've been tossing around are sort of interrelated i think but also like not like super intimately connected um number one you know how superhero stories tend to kind of be oppression allegories sometimes yeah so i think and i I mentioned that like news anchor naysayers pop up in marvel movies these very particular plot points to like critique the actions of the main characters and i think they're kind of using that as a sort of device to make it seem as if the entire world really is against these characters which sort of they're totally totally like that but that totally like feeds into the oppression allegory thing which is a really loaded thing for a variety of reasons um, and I'm, I will be the first to admit that I'm not usually fond of how superhero movies like portray oppression allegories is usually like terrible and not nuanced at all. But like, I think that's a whole episode topic there. Oh yeah. No, I think we actually literally have an episode planned on that sort of thing, but I think they're being used for that rhetorical purpose to sort of reinforce the idea of the, huh, you know, again, immensely powerful being as really the persecuted one which is Mm -hmm. like not exactly the best thing ever but i was also thinking and again this is kind of related but kind of did did you want to like add something there yeah and it sort of also uh is a shorthand of showing that public opinion is turning against or in favor of some particular thing i mean yeah definitely you know, yeah, like because media the, is an ISA. It yeah, is a good shorthand it's for that. easy way to get exposition as well. Like Iron Man 2, I think it was, where Pepper take, Tony has Pepper take over the company, and there's like Jim Cramer going, losing his mind on TV, which is kind what, of hilarious Wait, is he watch, the guy but, from that like business show or whatever? Yeah, he's... Right. I think it's been what canceled. The Mad Money or something. Mad Money, yeah, something like that. I think it's been canceled by now, but he was like, <laughs> my God. they had a bit of him like just freaking out on TV. Yes, I do, rem- I do remember that. I do remember that And Bill part. O'Reilly being all like, why oh is Pepper Potts qualified? Blah, blah, blah. 
Yeah, I'm surprised he and didn't actually say any sexist bullshit. Yeah, I mean, at the time, it was like, everyone's being skeptical in general of this thing that Tony Stark is doing. And then, you know, meanwhile, yeah. in like Avengers, sort of like- in the Avengers at the end of it, there's, they show like clips of news stories and stuff in like the aftermath of the war to just kind of give like a short exposition of what's happening in the wrap-up section and also like... I didn't remember that part. It's been a while since I rewatched that movie. Yeah. And there's a little bit of like just clips of people around New York. Like that one waitress. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. America saved my life. And then Stan Lee being all like. Yes. In New York. Oh my God. I forgot about that. But I do know what you're talking about though. I did. I didn't remember. In those cases it's you know it's kind of like it's a delivering just exposition of like this is what is happening during this little mm-hmm. time period that we're covering. And also at the same time, like this is how people feel about what's going on in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that they're, instead of using news anchors as like the Greek course, they're actually talking to people. I think yeah. there's something to be said about the difference between like, cause it's usually think, like the news anchors who tend to be the contrarian ones. Yeah. Right. I mean, Whereas, I think like, that using... was significant in the, at the end of Avengers because it's like, they had such a focus on the civilian population mm-hmm. um, during that whole like final battle sequence. Yeah. So they they're did. trying they to as compared to freaking man of steel. Yeah. Good and boy. so they're showing very directly like that. This is how people in New York are reacting to. The yeah. Avengers. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm also thinking about that. Um, that's okay. Sort of a microcosm version of what you're talking about is the opening of God. I don't remember which episode of Luke Cage this is, but the one that opens with the uh, Trish, Trish talk, talk segment, yeah. and she has multiple colors. Um, I think two for sure. One of whom um, is kind of you know fearful that Luke is like a, a menace or whatever, and then another person who actually knows him says he knows good but they're both like voices from citizens and also like interestingly enough um trish herself sort of goes against this whole trend of news anchors being the you know voices of doom and gloom or whatever and she actually she doesn't really I mean, yeah and she doesn't really endorse one caller over the other but it's implied that she thinks luke is a force for good like per- fairly strongly implied i mean so, that's pretty definite because like trish knows at least a little bit about who Luke Cage is through Jessica and is like, yeah. you know, so she's kind of, of using her, you know, particular ISA influenced to help Luke out in that case, which is really interesting. Yeah. Because I mean, we know already that she's like in favor of superhero stuff, at least. She basically wants to be one herself pretty much. But yeah, no. Okay. So there's that. I don't think she does much talking on her show about Jessica Jones. Like I know they have Jessica show up at her. Okay. So yeah. But... So Okay, so I'm remembering back in Jessica Jones where Trish deliberately tries to spread the word about Kilgrave, like, on the air. I'd forgotten about that. And she sort of, like, spreads the word of, like, a few of the people who, like, had been affected by him and goes on this whole bit of, like, how he's bad and stuff. Yeah, and then Kilgrave ends up, like, calling into the show... Oh my god, that's right. I didn't remember that part. But, and then it ends up being, like, after Trish gets targeted by people who were brainwashed who are trying to kill her, and then she ends up, like, going onto the radio and doing this, like, groveling apology thing. Oh no, god, that's right, I remember that. Which is, like, ugh, but also, like... Right. Yeah, sort of an interesting take on the, uh, 
seeing how the uh, media is affected by stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I had completely forgotten about that. There must be a lot from that show that I've forgotten about. So, like, while we're on the subject of uh, villains co-opting the media to sort of get ahead of the heroes, like, this basically does the same thing in Daredevil, like, several times, and like, in the middle of the um, first season. Yeah, it's like, there's a whole interesting thing where, okay, Ben Urich was a major character in the Daredevil season one as well, and... There's, like, the whole thing where he's, uh, and Karen Page, mm-hmm. and I don't think Daredevil is actually participating in that, but they're trying to track down, like, not track down, but, like, get info on and expose Fisk. Yeah, no, Daredevil wasn't a part of that. Um, he's doing his own other I don't know if, like, Matt thing. Murdock was involved in some capacity. I but... don't think so. I think Karen was doing this without Matt's and Foggy's knowledge, actually, which is very in character for her. Mm. Yeah, so it's, like... They're going in a whole thing, trying to, like, get all this dirt on Fisk, who is, at the time, like, people are afraid to even, like, say his name out loud, and he's completely secretive and not willing. Yeah, just 100% in the shadows. Yeah. But then, before they expose anything about who he is, Fisk just publicly makes some big appearance like to the press and stuff talking about i don't know like done with hiding in the shadows or something yeah, like that. i don't remember he, the exact I think words but something like that yeah i think he like framed and tried to frame himself as like a philanthropist who was yeah investing exactly back in the city or something really savvy move on his part yeah 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 and at the same and then, yeah go on and that yeah so then that kind of takes the wind entirely out of karen and Yurik's sales and they have to kind of Reapproach it and find. Yeah, his, because their like, task is much harder. He is already like, yeah find Fisk the dirty is, little secrets in his background. Well, yeah, and like Fisk has already. The reason that movie is so genius is he's taking advantage of the exact agenda-setting function of the media. So it would have been much easier for um, Karen and Ben to convince people that this person they knew nothing about was secretly a supervillain, but now they have to work against this image Fisk created for himself. And interestingly enough, at the time. Um, I like, I like around the same time in the series that all of that is happening, Matt Murdock or Daredevil initially gets the title, The Devil of Hell's Kitchen, and it's on this magazine cover that's like mm. slapped around all the time because he's been just, this is the episode where he's like trapped in the building with like the Russian guy. He looks like freaking Derek Huff from Dancing with the Stars. So like that whole time that he's like, he's been like cornered by the police or whatever and had to like beat a couple people up because those were the dirty cops it was the like fisk's dirty cops and he had to like beat yeah. them up to escape so and that was they, there was footage of that like actual like security camera footage if a memory serves and oh, that's yeah, what that the news got a hold of and tabloid whatever it was very much like a tabloid cover that they used in the show yeah. so like the same at the same time that fisk is like controlling his own public image Daredevil has, like, zero control over his own, and, um, I don't know, that's just, like, a really interesting, like, point-and-counterpoint moment in the first season for me, because, like, the the news is playing all while, because, like, this is around the same time that that apartment building exploded, like, Foggy got impaled Mm. on some shrapnel, so, like, that news is playing in the hospital, and, like... Stuff like that. So, like, they're getting, like, live updates on all that. This is, like, unfolding live for these characters. Like, Daredevil's image is being shaped for him in real time. He is becoming the devil of Hell's Kitchen in real time. 
And I think like at the very end of this first season, he get the it's a headline that gives him the Daredevil name too, right? I don't remember that for sure. It's been a while since I rewatched the first season. Which yeah, I remember. Do that I remember seeing like at the very end. I I feel like I remember seeing like a headline that said Daredevil something something in it, but. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Yeah. That's sounding vaguely and familiar. Um, was there any like press related stuff in season two? You know, I haven't actually finished season two yet. No, there yeah. wasn't press Not- stuff. There was stuff in the courtroom where the um, various jurors were, um, or were they jurors or just like observers talking about their like varying opinions on the Punisher? But that's not quite the same thing because it wasn't. Yeah, they, they weren't to... shown to be like explicitly talking to a reporter or anything, yeah, even though they were talking just... to the camera, which is a really interesting moment. I think that was interviewing jurors for the case. Right, 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 right. Yeah, you're right. I remember now. Um, so yeah, that's a slightly different thing, and I don't know if it necessarily. Um, I don't yeah. think I don't think that would count. As... Yeah, I, I don't remember all of it, but I feel like if it was, if there was anything about it, it would have been around like the Punisher trial and everything. Which... Probably, which has ultimately very little to do with Daredevil, strictly speaking. Before we, yeah, and before we, I guess, ditch the Netflix series at this point, I remembered um, back in Luke Cage, mm-hmm. um, the bit with Method Man, where he had that cameo when Luke stopped some convenience store holdup or something. And they have like this little like, oh, hey, it's you thing. And then I think in a later episode, Method Man went on the radio and did this whole like freestyle rap bit in what? support of Luke Cage. What? That must be in an episode I haven't watched yet because I feel like I would very much remember that because that oh. sounds amazing. Yeah, um, but yeah, and that is kind of, it's not really, ca- it doesn't really cause a turning point or anything, but it sort of represents the entire like Hell's Kitchen community rallying or around. Harlem, not Hell's Kitchen. Not Hell's Kitchen, you're right. The entire Harlem community rallying around Luke Cage in support of him after he'd been like negatively portrayed in the media to some degree. Yeah, which is really interesting because um, like, I think up until then, most of the music in that show had been in the context of Cottonmouth Club. So if that's a shift to where Luke gets the music, that's really interesting. Um, that would be interesting. And I especially have, because it's being remember. disseminated through the radio rather than like just in a club. That's that's pretty powerful, actually. I really yeah. like that. I don't really um, remember that well enough to know, but that would be. I just interesting remember all these to... like really extended interludes in Cottonmouth Club where whichever like act. Um, of the episode was like rehearsing in his mm. space or whatever. Um, and those were those were great scenes. Yeah, no, there's this other. Yeah, no, there was this. The yeah, well, not on the things. Netflix thing, but like I mentioned earlier, that I sort of had two separate yet kind of related thoughts on why these in-world media outs are so often like adversarial to superheroes. The the more I think about it, the less sense it makes. So we'll see how well I'm able to articulate this. So, and I promise I'm going somewhere with this. This is partly something that Jason Bainbridge was talking about in an art, like an academic art, article here, and partly something I was thinking through for my master's dissertation. Uh-oh, now we got citations. Sorry. But no, um, there's a very particular system of justice going on in these superhero narratives. And that's honestly probably a whole other topic for a whole other episode. But you've got basically this triangle you've got is like superheroes, law enforcement, the public. And superheroes are in most cases separate from law enforcement because they've sort of arisen out of situations where traditional law enforcement isn't enough. 
but they're kind of only allowed to exist in this like tripartite system insofar as they're actually ultimately serving the public. That's like the nutshell version of what I sort of worked through in my master's dissertation. Sure. But I think the the way in which media outlets play into this is that like the law enforcement is a repressive state apparatus, right? It's another one of those things that Althusser was talking about. I wish I knew how to pronounce his name. Um, but when the repressive state apparatus, the RSA isn't going to be enough when the superhero transcends, like does not serve the larger ideal of justice that both they and law enforcement claim to be serving. I feel like a lot of the times the media outlets are the ones to sort of knock them back into place to, um, Mm. because again, in the Incredibles, like we kind of mentioned earlier, the downfall of superheroes is, I mean, it kind of has to do with like lawsuits in the courtroom and stuff like that. But all of that is communicated to the viewer through media coverage of those like courtroom trials. And you see this like newsreel of them having their downfall. So they are very much cut down to size by, not by law enforcement, but by the media. And I think the media is serving two different functions in cases when it's contrarian. Like, yes, sometimes it can be, um, the media can be setting themselves up to be proven wrong by the superhero who is the main character and therefore right all the time. And also to like underscore this whole oppression angle thing I was talking about. But they can also serve as a corrective and sort of almost like pro-law enforcement in that way to like keep superheroes in check. I can see that. Um, I guess, yeah, because like when there's negative press, like either it's wrong or misleading and it's kind of like a way to have the hero be down on their luck or... Yeah, exactly. Something like that for a little bit while they try to set things straight and clear their name. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Or it's like the superhero legitimately did screw up, which definitely does happen. Mm -hmm. And the uh, media turning against them is kind of a representation of how people in general are turning against the character for whatever they screw up. Yeah, and it's like a way of keeping the, the heroes really, frankly, in a lot of cases, tremendous power in check that's really one of the only ways it can be kept in check i feel like because like brute force won't always work when you're going up against like freaking iron man or whatever but public opinion as represented by the media becomes like the most powerful force to be reckoned with in this case so i don't mean i don't know where i'm ultimately like going with this and i don't necessarily know what the implications of this particular in-world media usage would be for you know, our world that like friggin' worships superheroes. I feel like there are some interesting hmm. implications there, but I'm I'm not quite grasping them. It's a it's a really thorny set of questions that again I've been like grappling with for a while and I definitely want to think more about. But yeah, those those are basically my thoughts on that. Like the two different um sort of rhetorical functions that naysaying media can serve in these types of stories. So yeah. that that's basically what i've got that's interesting yeah and i do think like that sort of subtype um the first one where it's like negative press that the superhero has to like kind of disprove Mm -hmm. or something there's sort of two subgroups of that where Mm -hmm. it's either something happened that was that like made the superhero look bad like in secret empire with that staged Um, fight well i'm kind of actually that was kind of falls under the second thing where there oh. is a deliberate conspiracy. 
Oh. To exploit media okay, against the superhero character. Yeah. So what would you say is, is an example of the first thing you were talking about? Um, the first thing, I feel like a lot of Spider-Man things where there's just the Daily Bugle running some story about how Spider-Man was doing something bad ends up being like that because, like, Jameson is trying to smear Spider-Man, but it's also like a lot of these cases, Spider-Man's doing something and the press sort of interprets it the wrong way and makes him look bad. Mm-hmm. It is it is in this case sort of a smear attempt, just because Jameson's going to be Jameson. But it's also, it's not part of some larger conspiracy to discredit them like it was in Secret Empire. Yeah, that's true, that's true. And I also wonder, this is something I've been thinking about the whole time we've re- been recording, actually. Like, the difference in efficacy versus, like, photography and, um, photography and writing. Like, Clark Kent writes his own stories. Spider-Man only takes his own pictures. And is there is there something about photographs that's... Are they less able to shape public opinion for some reason? Like, I know you kind of wanted to talk about Marvels at some point. Is, is that something that... How, how would you say photography specifically, I guess, manipulates perceptions of superheroes in that? I mean, I think the... Like, I think one thing you have to consider there is, like... Comics are a visual medium. That's true. And That's like, true. You know, superheroes, part of their appeal is like their distinctive looks and their ridiculous costumes <laughs> and cool looking powers and just overall really interesting and fun visuals. So in universe, like photography is going to be important for capturing the action and really showing who these people are and what they're doing. Yeah, it's so, um, like, almost by extension, every comics panel is a type of photograph also because it captures well, a still image, and it's framed in a certain way on a metatextual level. I don't know what I'm trying to say is here. How, that is how pictures work, yes. Oh, my God. I don't know. Like, if I had more Superman-related context, I might have more uh, insight on that. Mm-hmm. But it does make sense that, like, you know, Clark is writing some of these stories and is at least in some way in control of the narrative, whereas yeah. Parker is just taking pictures and yeah. he's just sending those in and Daily Bugle's gonna print whatever it writes next to them. And I mean, in this case, even if Peter was writing stories about Spider-Man, like, Jameson's not going to publish them if they're like positive stories. So that's, that's true. That's true. Um, so it's not just, it's, I don't know if it's entirely photography versus writing, but I think that does just play into it because Peter Parker couldn't really be a writer for the Bugle, at least yeah. as far as writing was. Yeah. That and like, I think there's an important um, distinction to be made here. I think to a degree, this distinction only applies to past eras, but. I'm thinking of Peter's photographs of Spider-Man versus, like, the, again, the televised fight between Captain America and whatever that villain's name was in original Secret Empire. The Tumbler. The Tumbler. That was his name. And in these contexts, it's so much easier to strategically manipulate video to portray things in a certain way, whereas, like, an ostensibly, at least candid picture, it's at once, like, its own context and completely context it's harder i guess to build up a coherent narrative around it which i'd say actually opens it up to a wider possibility of narratives whereas video you can shape a lot more directly you can reinterpret a picture on reason you can reinterpret a video i guess what you're saying i guess 
And of course, this is not necessarily as true anymore with like, you know, Photoshop and everything. So I'm not sure how much that distinction even applies anymore. But yeah, I mean, I guess that's the general point I'm getting at. Well, I mean, yeah, but you mentioned it earlier. While we're on the topic of photography, I um, mm-hmm. wanted to go over Marvels, mm-hmm. which is it's reasonably well-known uh, limited run comic by Marvel, obviously. That is really. I thought it was Dark Horse. Anyway, that is about. Uh, it follows a photographer named Phil Sheldon, and it basically goes from like World War Two, or even a little bit before that. I think it technically starts in like nineteen thirty nine, mm. and then it goes through like the forties, the fifties, sixties. I think it sort of ends in the 70s although it at that point is sort of sliding into the marvel's weird sliding time scale thing which we yeah, don't have yeah, to get yeah. into right now oh god no um and maybe a whole other episode it's basically sort of a look at the history of the marvel universe from what is both explicitly a civilian perspective from this this guy who is entirely ordinary, but also through a media-related perspective, where mm-hmm. Phil Sheldon is taking photographs of all these big superhero events mm-hmm. from like the original Human Torch and Namor and Captain America in the 30s and 40s, through like the Fantastic Four and the mm-hmm. Avengers and Spider-Man through like the later uh, decades. He's like taking all his pictures and seeing some of these like major comics events through a civilian lens. Ha, literally a lens. Ha ha ha. That's yes. And so what Marvel's ends up being is Sheldon is not only taking his pictures but he also sort of ends up writing a book um, about it with all his photographs and stuff in it. That'd be a hell of a coffee table book. I'd buy that. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of the a lot of the series is about him trying to figure out like what the Marvels mean to the world and what sort of approach he's going to take with his book. Oh, that's so interesting. It was a little while since I read it. Um, I read the sequel not too long ago, but the original one is like struggling over coming up with an opening. He ends up being like very much pro superhero you know like he's looking at the good that these people are doing Mm -hmm. um even through some of the mistakes that happen he ends up like focusing on that in his book i don't think really you really get when you're reading it a whole lot of uh like the actual you don't yeah you don't get much of the actual content of the book but you do get like some of the reactions to it and stuff Wait, you're and talking about, like, book reviews and stuff? Like, is that covered in You don't get... No, just when he's trying to, like, pitch it to publishers and stuff. Oh, oh my god, I need to read this. This sounds so interesting. Yeah. And there's also, like, a few bits that are interesting just in a approach of looking at the civilian perspective on a lot of things. I think the one really big one is with the X-Men and mutants when the X-Men first kind of show up in Marvels and it's sort of you sort of see from this guy's perspective how public opinion and discourse about 
mutants and the X-Men is different from other superheroes. Like it's even in the really even in the art itself, even in like the art itself, it frames the mutants as scary looking almost, just in how the lighting oh, and stuff with how they're drawn and the character himself, like Phil Sheldon, he's framed throughout the series as like, you know, decent stand-up guy, family man, all that. But there's like the X-Men show up at some point and there's sort of a lot of a crowd of people who start like yelling against them and Phil Sheldon himself ends up getting like caught up in it and throws like a bottle or something at the X-Men and it hits like Iceman in the head and he's fine but it's like he sort of comes to his senses with that. Oh, really? And yeah, like at that point he sort of personally reassesses his opinion on mutants and it also comes with his uh, children. He has two daughters who they discover that there's been a young child mutant hiding in their basement. Oh my god. Because I guess there was some... It was like parallel to X-Men plot about Sentinels and stuff. So there's this very young mutant girl who has like kind of big black eyes and kind of a, almost like a skull-looking face. And she's not, like, dangerous or anything. And, like, Sheldon, Phil Sheldon is sort of, like, scared of her at first. But kind of sees that, like, oh, she's just a kid and all that. And I think that's, like, the big thing that ends up turning his particular opinion around. Huh. That's so interesting. doesn't really directly relate to media stuff in that case. I mean, it kind of does because he's still ultimately the one shaping these perceptions of superheroes through his work as a photographer. And, like... Obviously, that experience is going to affect how he approaches his, you know, photojournalism job. Yeah, and I think there's also some interesting bits with just how everything's drawn and all that as well. Alex Ross is the artist on it, so it's like, of course, this really gorgeously painted and everything. Like, Mm -hmm. and it looks more realistic than what you get in most comics, which is an interesting uh, subtext, I guess, on it. As well as, as well as I mean, being relevant to the overall like theme of photography and stuff. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, also, I remember this in the uh, second Marvel series where Phil Sheldon is at the Daily Bugle for a little bit. Well, he's not; he doesn't work for the Daily Bugle, but he like sells some his photos sometimes. <laughs> you learn that he actually really strongly dislikes Peter Parker. Oh my for, god! Seriously, for helping Jameson smear Spider Man. Oh my god! Oh, that's hilarious. Does he ever find out that Peter is Spider Man? No. He's just, the whole, the whole series, he's just like, we need more honest photographers willing to show things from their side and not those rats like Parker. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, that's great. Which is, it's wonderful. Oh, poor Peter, honestly. Yeah. Poor Peter. The second series is actually interesting because he's looking to write another book. Mm-hmm. Um, he also has cancer at that point. And oh god. It, it sort of is a more personal story, I think, in... The second series, it's almost mm-hmm. more about Phil Sheldon and his family than it is about the superhero things going on. That aside, he is writing a second book at the time, and some of the publishers he talks to, you see that like at least the publishers want almost like the dark side of the Marvels and all that, or like a book about the villains. And he's like, no, I don't want to write that. I want to something that's positive for these people who are sacrificing and stuff to do good in the community and whatnot. It's super interesting, yeah. Yeah, and it's and it's also interesting to see how just like there are people who are kind of clamoring for this negative coverage yeah. in one sense or another of these superhero characters. 
which I think there is for even in real life for any celebrity. There's like going to be like paparazzi and oh god, absolutely, hundred percent. You know, who are going to want to be able to print stories about how, like, oh, this famous actor or singer, whoever the hell, is doing some terrible thing, or their life's in shambles, blah, blah, blah. Cocaine! Something like that. I don't know. Yeah. This is a really weird voice. I feel like like that ends up being, like, very similar to how a lot of the negative press around superheroes is actually framed, honestly. Yeah, I was going to say, that sort of implies it turns into a self-fulfilling prophecy, like... Meet the media wants more stories about superheroes being not so super and yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Bad it's, news sells to some significant yeah, extent. As we all know, unfortunately. So I think that actually brings us to a pretty good ending point. I feel like we kind of came full circle there. Um, to so, an extent, yeah. And I mean, I don't think there's necessarily enough of the media shown in any one superhero narrative to really do any more than conjecture on that. But like, I, f- I feel like this is a good conversation regardless. I feel like we covered some really interesting territory here. Yeah, I can I can get behind that. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, it would have been interesting to talk about uh, Ultimate Marvel Jameson a little bit. Yeah, anyway, so I think we're going to sign off for now. Toodles. Uh, Till next time. I think we're going to be talking about Runaways next time. I think that was what we had planned. Yes, that'll be the first episode, at least the first we record, about a very specific, not just character, but a very specific, like, property because yes the, definitely uh, first season of runaways on hulu was released yeah but you know we marathoned it it was great yeah we like the runaways we're gonna be talking about the runaways show we're also gonna talk about the runaways comics mm-hmm. you can expect spoilers for both but we'll uh cover that at the beginning of the next episode all right so till next time then thanks for listening yeah thanks for listening catch you next time that's it for this episode of Yelling About Superheroes. For more yelling, you can follow us on Twitter at yellinabtsupers or check out our website at anchor.fm slash yelling-about-superheroes. You can also visit Whitney's blog at whitneythompson.wordpress.com where we post our reading lists for each episode. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and we'd love it if you leave us a review as well. Our theme music was composed by Rodrigo Vicente, and you can listen to more of his work at hooksounds.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.